1: Monday, January 31st, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynes Hoynesy, last week was probably one of the most significant, you know, weeks in terms of uh, progress or something to report on this lockout. But uh, as of right now, uh, both sides, uh, I think, are, are sort of, you know, just sort of gathering for their next move, I guess. Uh, and and we'll we'll wait to see what the uh, you know what the next step in the process is going to be. Yeah,
0: I think they met on uh, you know non-core issues you know a couple times last week, Joe. I heard they're they should meet at some point this week, but not. I don't know how serious those those talks will be, but you know the clock is running right now, Joe. So they've got to they've got to get something done here.
1: Well, yeah, the clock is running because uh, you know as I. I scroll back on my social media and I, I look and see uh, st- uh, stuff that we've posted over the last couple of years. Uh, right around now is is the time when Truck Day would be uh, all in the news. That that sort of uh, quasi holiday that, uh, that 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 uh, <laughs> Cleveland baseball fans uh, over the last you know couple of years have have sort of uh, you know made a non news story a news uh, something out of a. Uh, a story. Basically, it boils down to uh, we get a text from the uh, the baseball information department there uh, at Progressive Field, and and uh, a couple of the beat reporters go and stand on a loading dock and watch guys put pallets into uh, uh, a couple of trucks there, and you know maybe we interview a couple of the clubhouse guys, a couple of the truck drivers, uh, but but mostly we just stand outside uh, with our noses running, getting our our, our fingers and toes cold.
0: Yeah, we had, we always ask why Tony Amato, uh, the clubhouse manager, why they're taking their own water to, uh, to Arizona, like they don't sell water in Arizona.
1: I, no, I no. The first question we asked Tony Amato is, "How can you be running around here in January in uh, in a cutoff hoodie and shorts and uh, and showing everybody the the blinding uh, blinding white pale legs that he has?" But uh, that's the, I'm I'm going to get killed for for even saying that. <laughs> But uh, the some of the the items that we've seen them, uh, you know, uh, schlepping onto these trucks in in years past have been been pretty interesting. I mean, uh, we we've written about uh, Tito's scooter being put on the uh, on the back of the 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 truck the one year. I don't think I think it's been a while since uh, Tito's scooter has been, uh, you know, taken out to to Arizona. He's he's onto the golf cart now. He's (laughs) We're going to see him on like one of those rascals or, or something like that. Yeah, he needs four wheels now for sure. Yeah, a little more steady. Uh, and we've seen uh, pallets of uh, double bubble bubble gum, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, golf clubs go out there. But items that you wouldn't even think like they, they've taken like whole like x-ray machines out there on the on the on the pal. And, you know, you see them loading these things and it's like they're really moving out there for a month.
0: Yeah, yeah, they definitely, you know, and I think it was even more when, you know, like when they trained in, in Winter Haven and spots like that, that weren't really, you know, kind of a destination spot where they didn't really own their, their, you know, the, the site and, you know, and, and really have the, uh, you know, things set up for year round, uh, you know, for year round uh, rehab and, and training like the thing in Goodyear is that's, that's a, you know, that's a permanent thing. So when they went to Winter Haven, I mean, they had to bring everything Mm because, you know, they closed up shop at Winter Haven after they left.
1: And it was interesting to talk to the, uh, the drivers, the guys who have been doing it for, uh, you know, several years, uh, driving cross country and where they stop and, and how long it takes them. And uh, those guys, you get a real sense from those guys that, that they're, they're really proud of, of the, the fact that they do this every year. The, they, you know, have the opportunity to, to haul all that gear uh, across the country. And, and you know, they, they know all the, the landmarks and the destinations and where they're supposed to be and when they're supposed to be there. And he can tell you within a few hours, you know, when he's going to be arriving at the, the, the Indian site. Yeah, it would usually
0: take, what, like three, four days or mm-hmm. two, three, four days, something like that and uh, you know they'd always know where the bad weather was and how to get around it and you know i think there was usually two trucks so yeah it was uh, it was always those were those were real, those were modern day cowboys they were they were headed out on the road
1: yeah and for for us for the for the beat writers who who would who would wake up early and and go out there and uh you know uh with the tv crews and and try and get a couple of uh b-roll shots or or a couple of interviews and try to make a story out of uh, you know something that's that's really just sort of a, another step in the process. Uh, it it really just is sort of like that unofficial kickoff to okay, well, truck day is is here. You've got your next benchmark is maybe pitchers and catchers reporting, and then you know you've got to have your your travel plans in order and and all that behind the scenes stuff really starts to starts to ramp up when when truck day starts. Yeah, it's a, a right
0: of spring training, you know, in every, on every team, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe not in Florida or, you know, where, where such a, you know, where, what the, the race train in Florida, I, I don't know, but, you know, like in Cleveland, it's always been like, you know, like the, what the, uh, the sparrows returning to capistrano or whatever <laughs> you know it's a sign of uh, the season's about to change but you wouldn't notice know that you know looking outside the window today
1: no there's a there's a foot of snow coming this week too i i heard it's how they're going to celebrate my birthday later on this week uh the um the other things that we're missing like this time of year that that uh you know cleveland baseball fans are used to uh things like the uh, uh, it was tribe fest up until uh, this year, but now it should be something like guardians fest. You know, they're not able to have something like that this year, a uh, fan festival. Uh, the, after they switched it to the, the convention center, that, that became just a huge deal. And it was uh, a lot of fun to cover that for a couple of years, but it was also a chance to, to get uh, a, a little bit of one-on-one time with some of those players as they interacted with the fans, because they would always come back and, and sign autographs and, uh, they'd show up at the Greater Cleveland Sports Awards, which which are virtual again this year because of the the virus. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that we're missing right now in terms of, uh, you know, stuff on the Cleveland baseball, the Guardians beat, uh, where we're not able to have access to the players right now, and and we're not able to write and and talk about some of these things that that should be going on, uh, in the in the middle of winter. Yeah, you know what. But- I think
0: this is the second year in a row that uh, tribe fest has been uh, canceled, you know, and, and that, that is a, you know, that's a good uh, place to, you know, just for fans to come, like you said, Joey, you know, it gives you, you know, an indication that, Hey, the season is, is, is almost here. It, it's at least the start of the the long season is almost here. And uh, you know, the, uh, what uh, 2020 was a pandemic, you know, the, mm-hmm. You know, two what two different spring trainings, a sixty-game season. Then, you know, last year was uh, spring training, but it was a virtual lockdown of spring training. You know, you really couldn't talk to anybody except through Zooms. And uh, you know, who knows if if and when this camp gets open uh, with the lockout? Uh, you know, just how frenetic it's going to be. I you know I would think it's going to be going at, you know, hundred miles an hour, right. You know, when, when they get this thing settled and, uh, and just, you know, it's just going to be, you know, you just, it's just, it's just not the normal flow that that you're used to with baseball.
1: Yeah. Right. right about now is when, when Tito says like the, uh, you know, the juices start to get flowing and you, you, you sort of, you, you start to fall in love with it all over again and, and it, you get your mind set up for what's ahead with 162 games. And, uh, you know, right now we just don't have that because we're we're sitting here talking about, you know, uh, <laughs> labor negotiations again. So, uh, hey, wanted to mention uh, over the weekend you wrote uh, in your Hey Hoynes column uh, about robo umpires and the automated ball strike zone and how that is coming uh, partially to uh, the AAA level next year. Uh, what did you find out uh, just in asking around about the automated ball strike zone and and how long it could be before it, it shows up, uh, in, in Columbus or in Cleveland.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joe, uh, I was talking to uh, some people in Columbus and said, um, you know, that it will be instituted at trip at the triple a level this year, as we already knew that. Um, but it's not going to be at every triple a team. Uh, you know, from what I heard, uh, most of the, uh, you know, uh, automatic, what, what is it? Uh, I, most of the robot, robot, uh, robot umps will be used in the, uh, the Western League, you know, 10 teams in the Western League, the AAA Western League, and only one team, Charlotte in the East. Uh, so Columbus will not, you know, have uh, robotic umpires or, you know, they, they won't, you know, it's going to have to be, the, the, you know, the human error, the human <laughs> element is still going to be in play at, at uh, Huntington Park.
1: Uh, are, are We're on the path, though, to, to seeing it in the major leagues at some point. It, it yeah, has to I be would, that way.
0: Yeah, I would think. I mean, what, last year they used it at the Atlantic League, the independent Atlantic League. Uh, now they're stepping it up to, uh, you know, AAA. Uh, and the next stop, the big leagues, I would think, uh, you know, they must have been satisfied in some regard, uh, you know, with the results from the Atlantic League to, uh, you know, push it
1: push it to a triple a yeah they uh they aren't bringing it back this year to the atlantic league it's not coming back this year but that's that's not because it wasn't successful or that they didn't get the data that they were looking for in that experiment it's that this is the next natural progression is to take it from your experimental league and now put it in one of your more established leagues and, and see that and eventually you'll have it across the board in you know in in probably in all levels, but, you know, definitely a AAA at some point so you can start grooming these players to be used to it when they reach the big leagues. Uh, how pitchers like, uh, you know, Max Scherzer and, you know, veteran guys who've, who've been, you know, on the mound for so long and, and rely so much on pitch movement and location and, uh, you know, how veteran catchers like a Roberto Perez – who is expert at framing and uh, all these things, how it affects all those guys uh, still remains to be seen. But again, uh, this is, this is something that is coming. And if you're, if you're a purist, if you're uh, you know, the old guard, you better get on board with it because it's not going to, it's not going to change. Yeah, definitely.
0: And I guess, uh, you know, catchers that are great framers, pitch framers, you know, turning balls into strikes are probably, you know, going to lose some of their uh, advantage right there. And if, you know, just depending on how strictly, you know, this,
1: this, this strike zone is set up. Well, well, they, well, catchers who are great pitch framers uh, had better learn how to hit better than one fifty If they want to, (laughs) if they want to keep job, that that's going to be the bottom line. That's
0: another thing. (laughs)
1: Uh, I mean, and, and then really, you know, anybody, not, not anybody, but if you if you lose the 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 need for a guy who's a great pitch framer or uh, you know any any of those other aspects uh, to be back there all you need is a guy who can block and throw and there are a lot more guys who can block and throw and and hit for a better average than there are you know guys who can do all that subtle nuance and 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 be an effective catcher that way so again uh yeah a lot of changes coming so uh something to look forward to all right, we want to get into uh, today's Hoynesy's uh, 25 most memorable uh, Cleveland baseball personalities and figures. Uh, again, I'll I'll go with the uh, the blind introduction, and, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can we can guess who we're talking about today. Uh, this uh, this guy was originally drafted by the Cubs and traded to Cleveland after one season. Uh, he In uh, 1986, had the eighth-most RBIs in a season for uh, the Indians, 121. He led all of Major League Baseball, uh, a 21-game hitting streak in that 86 season. Uh, The following year in 87, had a 30-30 season, the first 30-home run, 30-stolen base season in Cleveland Indians history. Uh, He had 21 multi-homer games uh, wearing an Indians uniform. Uh and went on to uh major success uh after he was uh traded in 1989. Uh Quincy, who you got?
0: Yeah, it's gotta be Joe Carter. Uh Joe, it, it certainly sounds like him.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and and none of that description even scratches the surface of the character and the quality of person, just the nice guy that Joe Carter is. He he was hands down one of the most approachable personable nicest guys you will ever meet that, that wore a, uh, Cleveland Indians uniform. Uh, and, you know, growing up in the, in the eighties, uh, and, uh, you know, my first name is Joe and I'm, I'm looking at the guy hitting all the home runs and stealing all the bases for, uh, for the Indians. Uh, Joe Carter was at, at, in the eighties, he was my favorite Cleveland Indians player. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, just a
0: good guy. Um, you know, I remember uh, I first started, cover- I, I first started covering the beat in 1983 and uh, Gabe Paul was the, uh, you know, the uh, president of the club, Gabe Paul and Phil Seggy ran the club and uh, I would talk to Gabe every day and uh, he told me once, you know, we need some outfielders, you know, we need, we need young outfielders, That were that's what we're looking for, you know, and I didn't realize, you know, maybe it was, I was just kind of naive, I said, okay, yeah, I'm sure he you know you know maybe next year they're going to get get a couple outfielders and then it turns around like two weeks later they make the trade with uh with the cubs they get joe carter and mel hall and a right-hander don schilze uh you know from uh from the cubs for rick sutcliffe who you know won the cy young that year i right. uh, went to the cubs and won the cy young ron hassey was in that deal and uh george frazier but uh you know the two young outfielders were Joe Carter and Mel Hall. If I had been and, a little more aware, and Gabe Paul aware, was trying
1: to Gabe Paul was trying to tell you that he was I trading know. for Joe Carter. <laughs> well, this it, it, if if Twitter were around back in 1983 when or 82 or 83 when this uh, when this happened, Hoynesy would have been burning up Twitter with the. Uh, I know. I know. I just seeing, said thinking... that, that that Cleveland's getting an outfielder.
0: Yeah. I should have been kicking myself, you know, but uh, yeah. So, and, and, you know, I remember Andre Thornton uh, talking about uh, Joe and he said, you know, Andre had come up with, you know, had been with the Indians for a while then. And, you know, he was really kind of, you know, a voice in the wilderness. He was their one power hitter on that club. And, uh, you know, they, had, they had struggled. And he said, when, when he saw Joe Carter play, he said, you know, we hadn't had that kind of athlete before. You know, he thought, you know, this is this might be the start of a, you know, an eventual turnaround. You know, Joe could play all over the, the diamond. He played, you know, all three outfield positions. The first couple of years in Cleveland, he played, playing first base. He played some third base, played second base, and uh, you know, he could run. He could throw. Um, just uh, you know, just really kind of a dynamic athlete. He had gone to Wichita state. He played, you know, his freshman year, he played quarterback on the football team. Then he, then he switched to, uh, you know, then he stayed, you know, made the switch to baseball full time, but uh, you know, just just one of those athletes that really kind of jumped off the page at you.
1: And, and he went on now, obviously uh, he, he had a stretch in Cleveland where he was overwhelmingly successful. Uh, it, It became a, a high value player. And then uh, at the end of the eighties there, uh, you know, Cleveland flipped him, sent him in a package to uh, San Diego and and sort of jump. He was able to help uh, the Indians jumpstart that, you know, those teams of the nineties when they acquired Sandy Alomar and uh, Carlos Bayerga, Chris James in that deal that sent him to San Diego.
0: Yeah, that was in, uh, at the, at the winter meetings, uh, the, the uh, 1989 winter meetings, they made that deal. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Jack McKeon was the uh, GM running, running the Padres and he had, he wanted Carter so bad. He had wanted him, tried to get him for years. And finally he got him, And, uh, you know, but, but th- it was a high price. Like you said, yeah. Joe, Sandy, Alomar, Carlos Ballerga, and those were the foundations of the great 90s teams those two guys you know and it was just a a huge trade in the indians uh and just that, that that great stretch run of the indians that that cleveland went on there right uh i remember joe You know, joe was the first guy i saw do 30 30 he went uh in 1987 30 home runs 30 30 rbis and uh and and then and 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 in, uh, in, in just but be in that spring training, he would, that was, you know, that spring training, that was the famous sports illustrated cover with Corey Snyder and Joe mm-hmm. on it. You know, Indian uh, uprising Indians uprising and, and the upper and the uprising went they went 61 and 101, they, they, they lost. <laughs> they,
1: but when he I went know, 30, 30 that, that year, pardon me. Yeah. But he went 30, 30 that year. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they, uh, he led,
0: I think he led the league, like you said in RBIs the year before and in spring training uh, you know, they renewed his contract. Uh, Danny O'Brien was GM at the time and they they renewed his contract at $250,000. He walked out and uh, he walked out and he was uh, walked out of camp, went back to Cleveland. He was in Cleveland, I think for about six days. and. before he left, he he wrote this like this dissertation on why he left, and he he gave it to me, and it was written on a piece of I think cardboard or something. I can't remember exactly, but you know he had he had all his all the reasons he was leaving, and. Uh, if if joe had gotten made in the hall of fame that would have been a great artifact you know that would have wow been yeah
1: is that is that a piece of cardboard still around you you still I have think, that or? i
0: think it is i think sheldon has it i think shelly Man. shelly got it somewhere you better shelly, be careful might have it in his attic so sheldon ocker might have it in his uh, uh in his attic but
1: jeremy uh, fedor hears about that he's going to come hunting it down for uh for the cleveland <laughs> baseball museum you're uh you got to yeah, be careful yeah.
0: And uh, the the walkout lasted uh, six days, uh, But it did not get the nineteen eighty seven season off to a, to a roaring start. You know, he had a lot of support in the clubhouse. Uh, you know, the players were were complaining. They they were saying Joe's our best player. He deserves to get paid. And uh, Danny Danny O'Brien did not came off as the villain there. But Danny was just keep doing his doing renewing renewing guys' contracts. They couldn't reach a deal. Other than that, um, there was a and in in 1987 they fired Pat Corrales as manager. Mm-hmm. Doc Edwards took over, and uh, Doc the first day it was in Chicago at Old Comiskey, and uh, uh, Doc said from the first thing one of the first things Doc said when he took over he goes I'm naming co-captains Joe Carter and Mel Hall. And Joe says, Joe's going to be the good cop and Mel's going to be the bad cop. And if you <laughs> knew those two, that was a perfect description of both of them. <laughs> so I don't know how that went over, but you know, I, I, that that always stuck in my mind.
1: That's great. Uh, and and for Joe Carter, after he left Cleveland, after he was traded away and after he moved on in his career, uh, you know, for for those of us who had followed him and and sort of you know, we're, you know, behind him as a, as a player to see him go on to Toronto and have success there uh, to be another part of another trans uh, you know, franchise transforming trade uh, when he was dealt to Toronto for Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez, he and he and Roberto Alomar go to Toronto there. uh, And and then go on and win two world series. And obviously when I think of Joe Carter, the first thing that pops into my mind is Joe Carter hitting a home run in, in the 93 world series, to end it and, you know, dancing around the bases and, and actually feeling so, uh, you know, excited for him. Uh, I, a, as a teenager, I worked at a, uh, uh, an open air fruit market, uh, in the city of Cleveland. It was a, a, vegetable stand and the, the proprietors, they lived in Strongsville. They were, uh, you know, great people. They had actually had a lot of interactions with Joe Carter and they were good friends. They would, Every time Toronto would come to town, they would go see the the games and hang out with him. And um, I, I just remember how excited uh, my boss was the day after Joe Carter won that World Series. He came in and the smile on his face was just ear to ear because he was so happy for the success that that Joe Carter had had, um, you know, even in his years beyond Cleveland. So uh, just, you know, that's what I think of when I think of Joe Carter, uh, How how happy he made those uh the 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 simple fruit peddler in the city of Cleveland uh, that, uh <laughs> that
0: guy I mean when he hit that home run I covered that series and I just remembered you know they've sh- showed in Toronto they show that Joe's uh you know just how happy he was jumping around the bases and the great call Joe you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life or you know I forgot the Toronto uh announcer's name but touch them all Joe you'll never you'll never hit another ho- bigger home run in your life something like that it was it was it gave you chills to look at that right. and I, yeah, I think that was the only World Series to end on there was only two World Series that ended on a home run and that Masurowski,
1: one and um, yeah for the for the Pirates and, and Carter yeah, the only two so walk off home runs and, and Joe
0: I mean you know Joe was a good player 396 career home runs Stolen bases after he, you know, after he did that 30, 30 year, he mm-hmm. turned more into a, to a hitter. You know, he didn't, he didn't run as much as, as uh, you know, I think that, you know, he just, he's a, he was a big guy. And I think his body started taking a pounding, but you know, he turned into, you know, more of a, you know, a pull hitter and mm-hmm. uh, didn't use the, didn't use the whole field as, as well, but he was still just, just really a good, good player. And he loved to hit at Fenway, Joe. I, right. I, I he had he had uh he hit 20 home runs at Fenway, 20 career home runs, most in uh among his visiting parks.
1: Wow, yeah, three-run fift- homers,
0: two, three, two, three homer games at Fenway.
1: Well, and he would hit home runs in bunches too. The, the multi-homer games, he had you know, 21, and you know, he had a stretch, I think, where he hit five home runs in two games once. It was it, it, impressive. Uh, 259 career batting average, 2184 uh, hits, like you said, 396 home runs, uh, 1445 uh, runs batted in, played 15 years. Uh, like you said, the the injuries probably shortened his career, uh, you know, might've garnered a little more Hall of Fame consideration if he'd had a, a longer career and a, and, a, and a longer stretch of like, you know, those, those prime years. But uh, again, can't complain with, uh, you know, what he did accomplish. He, he went on to a, a long uh, career as a broadcaster for the Blue Jays as well. And he's in all sorts of Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So uh, Joe Carter. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, another one of those uh, 25 personalities that we're highlighting here uh, on uh, the podcast this week. Uh, hoping our subtext uh, subscribers will have something to say about their interactions with Joe Carter. We'll share those with you in a post. Uh, Hoinsey, we'll uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. uh, Talk again here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. All right, Joe.